uh, verses 1 and 2. Now, when I first started off, I was really excited because I was like, yes, I was looking at the whole chapter. Because usually when I, when I prep for a sermon, I read either a chapter or two before to kind of get the context and the chapter or so afterwards just to get the context of the material um, that I'm going to be going over. Well, as I read chapter uh, four, I was like, man, this thing really, really fits. I want to do the whole chapter. And so as I started studying, started putting down my thoughts, I'm like, this isn't going to be feasible to do in an hour or two hours. And so um, I decided that I could cover the first two verses and not do the other 16. So um, that's where we're at today. And I want to point out, just kind of give you a background. Um, to be honest, Second, Second Corinthians chapter 4, my experience so far um, as being a pastor, I cut out, there we go, as being a pastor and as, and as a Christian, I don't think, in all honesty, I can really um, express through my own experience what this letter means and what Paul went through as he was writing this letter. This is a letter that Paul wrote after decades of being abused, beaten up, not just uh, physically, but emotionally and spiritually by Christians and non-Christians. He's towards the end of his ministry. He's gone through and experienced stuff that I may not, I won't say I never will, but I may not ever experience in my ministerial career. And so as I approach this letter, I do so with reverence um, for God's word, but also Paul has become over the years probably my, my hero. It used to be Joseph, but as I, as I study God's word and the people that is in the Bible, and as I strive to be a better pastor and be challenged on a daily basis to continue to be better um, and better, and not just as a, as a Christian in my own walk, but also as a pastor, Paul is becoming more and more my hero um, in the faith. And so with this, Paul writes this letter with a heavy heart. Some of it's Thanksgiving because he starts off rejoicing. He's like, you know, we've, we've gone through the ringer on this. We've really struggled. But God has been with us, and we share in that hope, and we can celebrate that God has continued to mean with us as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians. But Paul also says, hey, you're not done. You haven't arrived. You're still struggling with some big things. And so I didn't put this in your notes, but I want to add this to yourselves that as we go through the sermon, but um, this week, what is it that the church of the Nazarene, what is it that we do well? And I want you to, in prayer, and I want you to <laughs> praise God for that. But also, what are the challenges that the Nazarene church is facing? Where are we struggling with? Now, I don't want you to make a list and then run to Darren and say, hey, Darren, you need to fix all these things. That's not, that's not what I'm getting at. But I want us to be honest and thoughtful in this and then not only pray that God would help us in those struggles that we see the church facing, but that we take an honest self-evaluation and saying, am I adding to the things that we're struggling or am I helping to solve the things that we're struggling with? What is my role that I, as an individual, play in this body of Christ, and to be reflective of that. 
And that's what, one of the things I wish I would have put on that, but I thought of it this morning. So I guess God gave me the idea, I think, is what. Um, and I'm going to be doing the same. Am I adding or am I subtracting from what God wants to do in this church through the things that we face? I did this again for service. I forgot to put the scripture in my notes, and I left my Bible at home. Actually, I guess it's in the car now that I think about it. But we're going to be reading 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. But before we read, I want to go ahead and let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to get together. I pray for the people here, including myself and this congregation, that as we dive into your word, that you teach us what it means, not just in um, intellectual understanding, but in physical action, that we can apply it to our lives. And that, God, I pray that as our time together is a blessing to you, that we listen to your word with open hearts, and that your word is embedded in us in a way that transforms us as you continue, as we sang during worship time. You continue to work in us whether we see it or feel it. Help us to always be conscious of you and what you are doing in our lives every moment of the day. Be with us as we continue to worship you during this service. In Jesus' name, amen. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, I think I've expressed this before, but whenever I go through a passage, specifically if I'm going to be for a Bible study or preaching, I always ask myself as many questions as I can as I read through the Scripture so that I also have a not just an understanding of the overall picture of what the passage is talking about, but what is it that God wants to talk to me about? And often God reveals what he wants me to know through the questions I ask, and that's usually a tell sign of what someone is going through in their own spiritual journey, for the most part. And so a lot of this, what I preach today, will actually be a reflection of what God has been working in my life. And I hope and I pray that you would also get something through what God's word is as he speaks into your life and as you hear God's word, not my preaching, but the word of God, that you would start to ask yourselves questions about, well, God, what do you want me to learn? Why is that in there? Why have you pointed that out? Does this apply in any way to my own life? And so first off, we start off with, therefore. Why is therefore, therefore? Therefore usually means a transition in which something that has just kind of been summed up or been said and, and the writer is about to sum up, kind of give the conclusion of what was just said. And so before we go um, past therefore, I want us to dive into chapter 3 a little bit, to understand what it is that Paul had just been talking about. 
The sermon title is The Glory of the Gospel. But why, have you ever thought, why does the gospel have glory? Well, one part of the reason why the gospel has glory is it's part of the new covenant that God has set, set in place through Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, Paul talks from verse, basically verse 6, verse 7, on to the end of the chapter. He talks about the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. In verses 7 and 8, Paul explains that the law had a glory because it reflected the nature of God. But the, but the old covenant had a glory in itself. And in verse 9, for if the ministry of condemnation, which he's referring to the old covenant, the law, had a glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. And what he's saying is that the fact that even the old covenant, which revealed our sin, which was also the death sentence, had a glory in itself, how much more glory is in the new covenant? In verse 6, if we backtrack a little bit, it says, who also made us sufficient. Jesus, he's referring to Jesus. Who made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, which is the law, but of the spirit. For the letter kills and the spirit gives life. That the new covenant is so much grander. Even though the old one had glory in itself because it was a reflection of the character of God, the new covenant has so much more because it brings life rather than the old covenant brought death. And the only reason why the new covenant can bring life through the Spirit is because of the sacrifice of Christ who paid the old covenant sacrifice penalty that was required for our sins. Paul lays out the glory of the new covenant here in chapter 3. In verses 10 and 11, the covenant is forever. Whereas the old covenant was only temporary to fill in until Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, died for everyone's sin. It was temporary. Verses 12, the new covenant brings hope that all may be saved doesn't require works, doesn't require money, it requires faith. Verses 13 and 14, the new covenant is clear, it's simple, even children can understand it. For John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You just have to believe and put your faith daily in Christ and you will be saved. Verses 16 and 18, the new covenant is Christ-centered. The new covenant is all about Jesus. It's all about what he did and what he is continuing to do. In verses 17 and 18, the new covenant is spirit-powered. So we see here, Paul lays it out, that the new covenant is forever. It brings hope. It is simple. It is clear and simple. It is centered on Christ Jesus, and it is powered by the Holy Spirit. This is the glory of the new covenant, the gospel of our salvation. Paul knew this. And as he, in Romans 1, 15, verses 15 and 17, Paul says this. 
That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, as it is written, the righteousness will live the righteous will live by faith. The gospel is the, is the real righteousness of God displayed through the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But who is the gospel for? Paul tells us in his own experience. Today we're going to be looking at Paul as an example of not just a teacher, but also a follower, an individual in the body of Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength. That he, had, that he considered me trustworthy, appointed me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer, I always struggle with that word, and a, and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I want you guys to remember that. Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who, believe, who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And last, he ends in verse 17. Now to the King eternal, the immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The gospel is for all who would turn to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and for a right relationship with their creator. But by what right do we speak the very words of God? Have you ever thought about that? In verse 1, it says God has given us his mercy in order that we may preach his gospel. And in some, it says that we may have this ministry. You guys ever thought about the power the word of God possesses and that we can speak it freely? It is not by our own ability to preach the word. It is not by our own will or strength it is not because we went to school or we've been attending Bible study our whole lives. We can speak the very words of God himself because of his mercy on us. God's words also embody his very presence, his essence. For the word of God is living and it brings life. To proclaim the word of God means the power of God is being spoken through you. Do we understand what that really means? What does God's power actually look like? I'm going to read you a couple of verses or uh, passages I, I believe I've probably used before, but I'll probably use them in the future because they help. These are some of the verses that help center me in relationship to Christ and realizing the powerful God that I serve, the majesty and who he is. Here on this earth, I've never had a dream where I stand before God. Some people claim that, but I've never experienced that. 
And so God's word, as I dive into it, I am drawn to certain verses because it centers me and reminds me of who I am in a right relationship with God, that it's all about God and that it's not about me. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the throne of, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two wings they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Now this is Isaiah in verse 5. He's using a word that you would, uh, maybe you could think of, what, would you, what word would you use to describe an event that you could not comprehend the power or sight that you were feeling and experiencing? One pastor used a, a word that I won't use just to reveal, but I want you, this is the most like strongest word that he can think of during his time. And he says, woe to me. He said, he cried out, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he had touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. One of the things that stands out to me is this is a seraphim angel. If you were to think of rankings like military or, um, of, or something like that, seraphim are ranked from what we can gather from the word of God, one of the highest and mightiest of all of God's creation. And here is an angel who, it's not God himself, but an altar before God. And he himself, a seraphim, cannot even reach and grab the, the coal himself. He had to use tongs to approach God, and he had to grab it with a tongue. And then, as he was going to Isaiah, it says it was in his hand. So it wasn't the coal, but it was the majesty and the power that was in, from the altar of God that even an angel, as powerful as a seraphim, could not approach it by himself. He had to use tongs. To me, that reveals a type of glory and power that is uncomprehendable. And then in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. This is the first part. It says, when I saw him, this is John the apostle, he's referring to Jesus. When I saw him, and he's referring to him, Jesus, in his full glory, he says, I fell at his feet as though dead. That John himself, who had been filled with the Spirit, who had walked with Jesus in ministry, when he saw God in his full glory, still fell as though he was dead. It always reminds me that it's not about me. And it always reminds me of the God that I serve and the power that he has. And as we continue with that perspective, as we look at the question, who is the gospel for? I want us to turn to the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, if you would want to turn there. And here, Jesus is, uh, there's been a big crowd that have gathered. And so he'd gotten in a boat and he had been pushed out a little bit. And this is one of the, uh, the parables that he teaches the crowd. 
And then starting in verse 3, the second part of verse 3, it says, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. And the birds came and ate and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now in this parable, the, the seed is the gospel, the word of God. The places and types of soil are the people. And those who are saved in Christ and serve him are the farmers in the parable. Did you notice what Jesus said about the farmer and what he didn't say about the farmer? Did he say that his clothes had to be, that he'd be well-dressed? He had to be looking nice so that when he spread the seeds, people would be more accepting of who he is? Did Jesus, Jesus didn't talk about if the farmer was well-mannered or was churched socially churched, and that he had behaved as we expect people to behave? Did he talk about the container in which the seeds were, the gospel was in? Did he say, did it have a boombox? Did it have bright and shiny emeralds on it to get people's attention when the sun hit it just right? Simply, there was a farmer who had a job to do, and the farmer went out to do it. But where did the farmer spread the seeds? Any normal farmer went spread seeds on rocks or in paths where he walks daily, maybe, to where he knows as soon as it starts budding, his foot's going to step on it. He didn't throw it in a patch of weeds when he knew they would struggle. But yet, the farmer, he spread them wherever he went. He didn't look at the soil. He didn't look at the people and say, oh, this person, I see their lifestyle. I see where they, where they look. They'll never accept the seed, so I'm not going to throw it there. I'm not going to waste my time. No, the farmer threw it wherever he went so that by chance the seed might grow wherever it landed, regardless of the person or soil it landed on. In what manner did the farmer spread the seed? I know... Um, there's a lot of people in churches who say, oh, in this church, they're doing this ministry or they're doing this curriculum. We need to do that so we can bring people in. He didn't, the farmer didn't try different techniques. He didn't try throwing it overhand over his back, doing a 360, trying to get people's attention. He simply spread the seeds as he went. The farmer knows he can't make the seed grow either. The farmer can't yell or beat it or try to convince the seed to grow. Only the seed can grow. Only the word of God can grow in someone. Because it is by the power of God that the gospel is able to grow. The seed can only grow if the place or the people that is planted in will also allow it to grow. We can't force people to be Christians. We can only tell them about who Jesus is. 
But for some farmers, they think they're not strong enough to spread the seeds. They think they need to work out more, that they need to grow in their knowledge. Or they're not strong enough to hold the seeds long enough to spread them. Or the farmer's not good enough, doesn't speak well enough. Maybe the farmer doesn't feel like they look good enough. And we'll address that later. It's not about what you look like or what you wear, how strong you are. It's about your faithfulness. It is by God's grace that we have this church and that we can do the ministries that we're able to do. It's not because we have a will and we have an ability, therefore the church exists because of us. It only exists and is able to do what we do because God allows it. Another question that this passage brings to mind is in verse 2 is, how can we keep from being misled from the true gospel? We see here in verse 2 that the Corinthians are being led astray by people that are changing the true gospel that was preached to them, that they had received from Paul. Today we see the same thing happening. People often soften the word of God. They only preach the good stuff, but they leave out parts because it might offend or it might push people away. They even change what the meanings of passages have meant for hundreds and thousands of years so that they can draw on a crowd and appease the masses. There has always been people to change the word of God in order that they get what they want or to achieve an end goal. But how can we tell if we are hearing the true word of God? How can we tell if we're not being misled? For, for, for starters, we read the scripture daily and then we study it as much as we can so that we recognize God's voice and that when other people speak, whether a teacher or a fellow believer, we can tell if they are speaking from the Spirit of God, which testifies to what the, whole, what the Word of God says. Second, we pray and put all things under the authority of Jesus Christ. Third, we apply the Word of God in our daily lives so that not only will we recognize when we hear the Word of God, but we put into practice what the Word of God says, and we will recognize by action fellow believers, not just believers, but also those who proclaim to teach the Word of God, that their actions and their words match up, and that is a sign that they are seeking after God. And that we rely on our brothers and sisters in Christ that we sharpen and grow in our knowledge together so that we ourselves do not misinterpret the, body, the word of God, but that we counsel each other and encourage each other to grow in our knowledge of God. And that means that we need to get together on a regular basis, not just Sundays. Yes, we want you to attend church, but we also want you to get together during the week to spur one another on so that we may have the fear of the Lord, and I do mean the fear of the Lord, for that is what the Bible means, and the love of the Lord in us and in our actions. I want us to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you, want, if you will. 
And verses 16 through 21, Paul kind of comes back to what he's talking about here in chapter 4. He's talking about there's these people that are misleading. They're distorting, distorting or adulterating the word of God in order to mislead the Corinthians and other believers. And so Paul addresses them. And in verse 18, it says, Since many are boasting, which are these people, and also some in the Corinthian church, in the way of the Lord, does, or the way the world does, I too will boast. He's saying, okay, if you're looking at them and they're your litmus test on what an apostle is going to look like, he's like, let me interject. I'll give you my resume and I will demonstrate to you why I preach to you the whole gospel and the true word of God. And I don't adulterate it for my own purposes, but I use it for God's glory and for God's glory alone. And so here he is, Paul, giving his, I guess you would say, his uh, job application. And I just want you to know, I have never gone through pretty much like 90% of what Paul went through. I don't know if I will one day, but I hope I don't, because some of the stuff he went through is hard, but I, I pray that I would have the strength and will to honor God. And this is Paul's resume. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm reading here from the NIV, and it adds, I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. He's saying he is a greater servant than they are. He says, I worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers. I've been in danger from bandits. In danger from fellow Jews. In danger from Gentiles. In danger in the city. In danger in the country. In danger at sea. And in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and I have been naked. Paul is saying that he preaches the whole gospel. He preaches the love, the grace, and mercy of God, but he also preaches the truth and justice of God. But of all the things that he just listed, he says, above all that, in verse 28, he says, besides everything else, this is kind of his crowning jewel of his testimony. He says, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. The thing he boasted about the most was his love for others. He says, not only have I lived a life to glorify God, but my heart also reveals who I am and gives true testimony as a follower of believer, as a as a believer of Christ, that I do the will that God has for me. But why would Paul go through all of that? Why would he suffer all those things? Because he understood the glory of the gospel. 
There is nothing else by which we can be saved. We are to share the whole gospel, not just the parts we like. We must be willing to do so regardless of what that may lead to. Because if we suffer in Christ, as Paul did, all the better for the glory of the gospel that is in Jesus Christ. That if we suffer, we will be in glory to God and we will be lifted up by God. When Paul, if you look throughout his history and his books, he wrote 13 of the New Testament books. And if you kind of look through Paul and his character through those books, you'll see that when Paul, when he was suffering, yes, he may have at times said, God, will you get me out of this? But most of the time, when we look at, at Paul, he wasn't praying that God would save him from the trials he was in. He always praised God because regardless if he died in one circumstance or the other, he knew at the end of his life, whenever he died, that he would be resurrected with Jesus and that Jesus was his hope. Jesus was his gospel. And that was what he looked forward to. He praised God for his resurrection and time that he would spend eternity with Jesus. When we cheapen the word of God, we bring dishonor to our witness. And we blaspheme God's name to the world. We are to take what people say and hold it up to God's word. And we are to also bring it under God in prayer, <clears throat> under his authority. No matter who says it, if it's Billy Graham or whoever, you, you know, in the past or present that you listen to, no matter who they are, you are to say, what they say doesn't match the word of God. And then also pray about it before you accept it as truth because we cannot be lazy in this area because it is too easy, especially today, to be misled from God's word. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, in the last part of it, says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This means that we must put everything under the authority of Jesus and see what he has to say about it and accept whatever he says as law because whatever God speaks is the law and the very word of God. As we come to a conclusion, I want to remind you that it's not about your ability, but it's about your availability. And Paul demonstrates this maybe best. In chapter 10, Paul continues to talk about those that mislead others. And he, then he talks about the Corinthian church. In verse uh, 10, or in chapter 10, verse 7, in the first part, it says, you judge by appearance. He's talking to the Corinthians. He's saying, who you're following, who you're leading, is by what you see and by what you hear. And as he, if you jump down, to verse 10, it says, for some say, he's saying some say this about Paul. It says, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. So basically what they're saying is, is that he's ugly and he doesn't speak well. That basically, if we even see this today in our culture. If you look good, what, regardless of what you're saying, majority of population will at least 
try to pay attention because of the way you look. And if you look ugly, but you speak well, a lot of people will listen to what you have to say. But in Paul's case, they're saying, he doesn't look good, and he's a terrible speaker. So why would you follow him? They're saying, come follow us. And Paul addresses this in verse 11. To such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. He's saying, don't look as the world looks, but look at it. listen to the words that a person actually says and match that up with their actions. He says, I may not be the best speaker and I may not be the best person to look at, but my words match my actions. My faith is lived out and open for all to see. Some called Paul ugly and and a terrible speaker. Paul called himself the worst of the worst. But God used him to be one of, if not, the greatest evangelist in the history of the world. He may have led more people to the glory of the gospel than anyone else. And it was not on how he looked. It was not on how well he spoke. It was in his understanding of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that he knew and understood to be the only thing that matters in his life. Paul knew that his love for God was so much more than anyone or anything in all of creation. Paul lived out what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. And Jesus is saying this in front of a crowd. It says, He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Paul knew he was lost without the gospel. He knew what the gospel meant to him. Jesus wasn't saying you have to hate people. That's not what he was getting across. He was saying that your love for him needs to be so much greater than your love for anything else that in comparison, it looks like you almost don't even like them. Paul used the word gospel a lot, and he had different names for the gospel. He called it the gospel of God, the blessed gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, the gospel of peace, the gospel of our salvation, and the gospel of your salvation. Paul calls it his gospel. Why is it his gospel? Why would it be your gospel? I left that those lines for you to fill in in the insert. But for me, it's my gospel because of the love and power that Jesus has demonstrated time and time again in my life and that he is my Lord and Savior and he I desire more than anything else. And in his word, he has declared that those who are in him will share in his inheritance and that his kingdom is also my kingdom and that he is mine and I am his. That is why it is my gospel. And that is the gospel that I try to proclaim to those who do not know, and I try to encourage those who do know him. I share in Christ's new covenant. 
and those of you who are in Christ also share in his covenant. Should not those in the world have the same chance to call it their gospel as well? Jesus is calling us to spread the whole gospel wherever we go and the trust that he will make it grow and it is not in our own power. That we are to be faithful in studying God's word and proclaiming it, that we are not misled and that we have a reason for our hope and that we tell people for that hope. If you are in a relationship with Christ but you struggle to find your hope in Jesus and your excitement, then I encourage you to talk to a brother and sister in Christ about it. They may encourage you, but they may also be encouraged by you in your struggle, in your endeavor to understand and to know God more and more. And know that God's mercy is with you, and because of it, you're able to do whatever it is that he has called you to do. And with that, let us pray as we go out this week. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to read it openly and freely. I pray that we are faithful to your word, the whole word, not just part of it, in the, in the way we tell others about who you are, but also in the way that we seek you out, that we understand you more and more, and that we encourage others to grow in their relationship with you. As we go out this week, help us to reflect on your word, to be challenged by it, and to be faithful to what it is you've called us, knowing that it is by your mercy that we can do so. In Jesus' name, amen.